Amen. Actually, I, <laughs> some of you were trying to anticipate what was coming next with that. You know, like, I know what's coming, and just it was just said to me, how about the over and under? When's that coming up? So it's great stuff. Genesis chapter 2. Go ahead and turn there. Genesis chapter 2. Uh, one of the more difficult books in the Bible to find. So I'll give you a few moments to get there. Genesis chapter 2. We are starting a brand new series this morning. And uh, my prayer is that this will encourage you and allow you to feel equipped um, to, to live in a marriage that not only you can be satisfied in, but that Christ is praised and, and blessed and glorified in. And I want to give us some things, maybe over the next couple of weeks, that can help us to view our marriages or marriages with the right lens, with the right focus, with the right focal points. Uh, we have all seen marriages. We've seen them from a distance where you see a marriage and whether it's family or friends or someone you know, uh, maybe it's online, you know, you see uh, couples sharing pictures of themselves doing different things, whether it be a date night or whatever and, and different things. And you see that and you think, man, now, now there's the perfect marriage. There's a couple that has it figured out. Man, those guys, maybe it's some friends of yours that it seems like every time you're with them, they just have that ideal marriage, that ideal relationship. And you kind of like, then those guys got it figured out. And then you look at your own marriage or your own relationship and you think, so what am I missing? Where am I not getting whatever they're getting? Uh, and what's the trick? What's the, what's the magic formula? What's the catch? What's the thing that's really going to allow me to have that kind of relationship with my husband or with my wife or in the relationship I'm in right now? now? Why can't I figure this out? Why can't I figure it out? And so over the next four weeks, starting this morning, we're going to kind of tackle some things that I pray will help us understand that it's not about trying to figure out this magic formula. It's not about trying to figure out this magic equation that if you can get this down and these seven steps, then you'll be all set. It's about having the right view of relationships as a whole. It's about having the right view of our marriages. And it's about having the right view of our own walk with Christ and how that will greatly affect our marriages and our relationships. The truth is, and many of us know this, we all know this to be true, but we have a hard time sometimes believing what we know to be true. Uh, there is no such thing as a perfect marriage. Right? Now, listen, again, I say that and you go, I know. And there's some couples maybe in here, or maybe you've been here in your, in your marriage, and you've thought, I don't really want perfect. Man, I just want bearable. Like, like, I don't need perfection. Like, that's great. I get no perfect marriage. Okay, great. Can we at least get, like, above average marriage? Can we at least have, like, strive for that level of marriage, right? We've all, we've all understood there's no such thing as a perfect marriage, but for some of us, we're like, can I just have the, a better marriage? Can I, can I just be in a better situation, but since there's no such thing as a perfect marriage, we should all feel lucky and blessed and encouraged by that. Why? Because perfection is not the goal of a marriage, right? Perfection in marriage is not the goal. The goal in marriage, the goal as a follower of Christ in your marriage is Christ-likeness in your marriage, that's the goal. It's not perfection. It's not always having the right thing to say because, guys, we're never going to have the right thing to say. We're always going to say the wrong thing. And I've said this for years, and it's still the best marriage advice I can give you. If you've been married for a long time and you don't do this, or you're just getting married, or you're newly married, let me give you the, the secret. You ready? Guys, every morning, roll over. Look her in the eyes. Say, I'm sorry. 
And when she says, for what? I don't know. But I'm going to do, say, think something. I'm sorry. Okay? Just get it out of the way. So when you do it later, she'll go, but you, and I, but, I already apologized for that. I already said I was sorry. Now we understand we're not always going to get it right, but that's not the goal. The goal is not perfection. The goal is not to always say the right thing and do the right thing and, and always have the right phrase and, and always be afraid of, of, oh, but if I blow it. Man, we need to embrace our imperfections and strive for Christ's likeness and be open and honest with our spouse. Man, we're not perfect. And so we're going to have some bumps in the road. We're going to have some growing pains in our marriages and in our relationships. We need to embrace those things and then allow God to use those things to grow us into a healthy and mature relationship. Maybe you're married and, and feel like everything in your marriage is good right now. You're married and you feel like, you know what, man, everything's great. I've got no complaints. I mean, I couldn't ask for a better husband. I couldn't ask for a better wife. I mean, literally everything in our marriage right now in this season is great. I have no complaints. That's awesome. That, that's awesome. Then let me tell you, this series is for you. Uh, maybe you're here right now, and in your marriage, there's some things you're not happy with. There's some situations or some issues that are maybe not big issues, right? They're not huge issues, but they're there, okay? There's something going on there, maybe some conflict, lack of communication, some, some things have happened, or maybe some things are happening, and, and you're just kind of in this bumpy stage in your marriage. Maybe it's not like everything's horrible, but it's not great. It's not where you want it to be. Let me tell you something. This series is for you. This, the next four weeks, I pray, you'll understand are for you and will encourage and help you. Maybe you are in a situation right now where you're not married. And you honestly wonder, will I ever get married? I remember when Sandra and I were first dating, she said she had this, when she was like in upper high school, like 19, like first year of college, she had this like plan, right? By, by 22, I'll be done with college. Okay, by 23, I'll be married, right? By 24, I'll have my first kid, right? You got anybody ever, any ladies ever do this? Be honest, ever plan it out that way? You had a goal? No, really. Any guys plan out when you wanted to be married by 18, right? Like, what's the soonest I can get married? That's really what I want to know, right? Okay, some of us, maybe you've never done that, but she had this plan. And you know what she had to realize really quickly? That plan did not come to be. It didn't happen the way she thought it would. It did not at all happen the way she thought it would. I mean, she thought, oh, I'll have this done and this done and this done, and it just wasn't happening. And for maybe some of you, as you're single right now and you're not married, maybe you think to yourself, man, is it ever going to happen? Like you're, maybe you're getting up into your 20s, maybe even older than that, and you're like, I just, is it really going to happen? It seems like every relationship I go into, like it doesn't work out. Or, What's wrong with me that I just I can't make this work? See, in our society today, that's kind of the mindset. You've got to get your stuff together. And let me just tell you something today. If you're single here this morning and you're not married, there's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with you. I don't know. And here's the other thing I'll say too. This is where sometimes it's not a popular to say this. There's a, a chance that if you're single this morning unmarried, you may never get married. I'm just being honest with you. I, I know that many pastors and many friends will tell you, oh, no, it'll happen. You know, this is where we say God's got that perfect one for you. And, and you know, every person has somebody God made for them specifically for them. 
And for every one man, there's one woman that's the right person for them. And here's the thing. It's not in here. It's not in here. See, you choose who you marry. God says, hey, here's all the principles. Here's the things to look for in a spouse. Here's the things that I encourage you to look for in a husband. Here's the things to look for in a wife. But you make the decision. You decide who you're going to marry. But even in our Christian culture, we like to say things like this. Well, God, you know, this is the person that God has for me to marry. This is the person. And then if it doesn't work out, you know why we like that? Because we can blame God. Well, God, why did you bring this person? Why did you have me marry this person? No, no, no. We make that decision. So for some of you here today that maybe are single or unmarried, maybe, maybe you'll never get married. Maybe you will. I don't know what your future holds. But the key, and if, if you're single this morning and unmarried, then my encouragement to you is this. Be content in Christ no matter what. So that if, if it does happen and there is an open door and, and there is someone you have a relationship with that, man, it just seems like this person has all the characteristics that I believe God will want me to see in a husband or a wife. I'm going to go ahead and, and engage, get engaged with this person. And then we're going to go ahead and get married. And if that happens, praise God. But we need to be content in Christ first before we ever think that this person is going to bring us contentment or joy or happiness. And if we're not content in Christ, no person's going to fulfill you. No thing, no substance is going to do that. And so whether you have a great marriage, whether you've got some stuff going on in your marriage, whether you're not married, maybe you're in a different season all together in your life. Maybe you've gone through things in your life that you never planned on related to marriage and relationships. I want to say again, I pray you would know this series is for you. And I feel like I need to say that because sometimes people come into a marriage series and they think, well, this is for them or this is for that couple or this is for them. And, you know, this is for the couples that are doing pretty good, just need a little bit on top, you know, just need a little extra. This isn't really for me. Don't do that with this series. Open your heart and mind to say, God, how can you speak to me through this coming four weeks as I commit to be a part of this series? The truth is the keys that we will be addressing are meant to be applied to us individually so that we can see a positive change in our relationships. So I want to start by looking at one of the first things we should start to look at, the first marriage. Look at Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone, this man being Adam. I will make him a helpmeet for him. Go down to verse 21. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of the ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. It's interesting. God says that he puts man into a deep sleep. And then he creates, we know, woman from the side of man. What's interesting is he never says he woke man up, right? I mean, it was a, it was a joke. Okay, anyway, so let's move on. Ugh, tough crowd. Okay, verse 22. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, made he a woman, and brought her unto the man. Verse 23, And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. It's a powerful term right there. It's a powerful term. One flesh flesh. What's interesting to note about this is, is I do believe this is literal. 
Some people say, well, there really wasn't a literal Adam. There really wasn't a literal Eve. It's just figurative language here. That is not how Jesus took this text. You go all the way over to the Gospels, and they start asking questions about marriage, and he referenced what? Genesis. He, he referenced that verse. Leave father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. If Jesus referenced it as historical fact, then why would we not treat it as historical fact? This is, this is I believe, this is literally the first marriage. This is the first union we see, and it's initiated by God. It's initiated by God. He said, this is, the, this is good. Marriage is a good thing. There's nothing wrong with marriage. It's a good thing. And that phrase, one flesh, is so powerful because it doesn't just involve intimacy and the union of physical oneness. It's implying a oneness that stretches far beyond that. It's this oneness of we grow together in how we look at things in life. We grow together in our emotions. We grow together in our relationship. We become one. Now, I know what you're thinking. My husband is nothing like me. My wife is nothing like me. There's no way we're one on this. It doesn't mean we're the exact same person. With our, we don't have our individual thoughts and personality and all that. It means that we have a way of coming together in oneness. We're still ourselves, we're still unique in our own selves, but we can grow together with another person and become one. One in vision, one in purpose, one in in our drive for what God has for us. We become one. When we join in marriage with another person, it is an amazing and blessed experience. However, it also comes with its challenges, and hear me now, requires effort. It comes with its challenges and requires effort. Now, we don't like to think about the effort part, do we? We just want to get married and think everything's going to be great. But marriage, like anything else in life, requires effort. I believe that we can set some goals for ourselves and our marriages that will help us get healthy and stay focused on Christ in our marriages. So here's the four things we're going to talk about for the next four weeks. I'm going to give you kind of the... the, minor version here, the summary of it, and then we're going to kind of break it apart over the next couple of weeks. The first goal we're going to set for our marriage is Christ-centered. That our, We're going to have a goal for our marriage and our relationship to be Christ-centered. Next week, we're going to talk about mission-driven. Mission-driven in our marriages. We're going to be mission-driven in our marriages. In the third week, we're going to talk about devil-beating. devil beating. We're going to put a whooping on the devil, okay, that week. Now, we're, we're not really going to do that, um, but we want to talk about some things in that week that how we can guard our marriages from the influences of the enemy. By the way, the, you know, the number one thing the enemy wants to attack is the home and, and the, the family, the, the marriage. You know, it's, not, it's not a coincidence that if you go back and just study the last 50 years of our country and the idea of family and what's, how it's been under great attack. And then you look at some of the things that have happened in our country and in our society and some of the consequences of the breakdown of the home. It, it's, it's unparalleled. You know, it's amazing too. I, I, and I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not, I'm not the smartest man in the room, okay? Ton, you guys are so much smarter than me in so many ways, okay? Well, not all of you, but most of you, okay? Some of you are, Okay? <laughs> Malachi's back there, so i got to include him in somehow. So, Just kidding, man. Nothing but love, Malachi. Nothing but love. Okay. But when you, when Sandra was just 
It was some of the teachers from Emily City. Danielle was there as well, and um, Diane was there, I believe. I'm not, Deanna might have been there too, I'm not sure. But um, they did this kind of like a, what do you call it, like a professional development day. And they brought in these speakers, and they were talking about all these issues kind of, you know, dealing with children, obviously. Some of the ways that emotionally, you know, you have to kind of understand where kids are coming from and how to handle certain situations where if a kid is getting upset or what to do and all these things. And, and I, I don't remember all the things that was talked about, but Sandra was kind of saying to me that they were talking about the seeming escalation of some of these things that are happening with kids. And we can, we can point a lot of fingers. And be careful, though, when we point fingers because these are kids that are, you know, my kids' ages and if, if I didn't do something like I should have done as a parent or as I should be doing as a parent, I didn't just come up with that on my own. Odds are the generation before me maybe let it slip a little bit. The generation before them let it slip a little bit. So just throwing this out here, before we start really ripping on this generation right now, realize that this generation didn't just come into existence all on its own. And some of the things that we see as issues and errors and problems in this generation didn't just happen all on its own. The previous generation had a hand in that. And the previous generation had handed that. So I'm just throwing out as a warning. What's that saying? If you point one finger at somebody, you got what? Three pointing back at you. So just take a collective evaluation of, okay, this is where we are. How have I contributed to the issue? Not just, oh, those people over there, they're screwed up, okay? But I was thinking about that. And we were talking in the vehicle Friday. We were talking about some of the things. And it was, obviously, this is a public school, okay? So this is very humanistic thinking, very non-biblical thinking, which, again, are we surprised? No, because they don't have Christ. They don't, they don't have this foundation. So that's all they have is that kind of humanistic, let's just, we can do it. We can do it ourselves. We can be strong enough and all these things. And there's a couple of things that stood out to me when we were talking about the kids and stuff. And she even said it. She said, you know, I just can't get away from the thought that maybe the breakdown in the home where there should be a mom and a dad partnering together as one to raise these children up to, to nurture them and equip them and, and, and walk with them through life. Maybe the breakdown of the home is leading to some of these issues we're seeing in the classrooms today. And I started thinking about that, like, how long has this been going on? You know, like, think about, and I remember years ago, Tony Dungy, one of my all-time favorite football coaches, okay? He's written a couple books. He does analyst work now for NBC, I believe, and and I was watching this thing just the other day. I didn't watch the whole thing, but I was watching the thing. You guys remember Michael Vick? Remember Michael Vick, the quarterback for the, I think it was the Atlanta Falcons for a while there. And then he came back in the NFL and played some other teams. He got in some trouble years ago, got into dog fighting, okay? Went into prison. You know, while he was in prison, by the way, most of the media, most of our country were just, I mean, just destroying this guy. But you know what's funny is Tony Dungy went and visited him in prison, Got to sit with him. There's actually ESPN put a thing out about this now. You can watch the story of how it unfolded. And I was watching this little interview of Tony Dungy. And all he did was come alongside him and just encourage him. And just kind of walk with him. Give him some, some advice. Yeah, some counsel. Uh, Tony Dungy being a Christian man, a godly man. Trying, and prayed with him and encouraged him. And just tried to say, okay, what can we do to move forward? Like, what do you need to do to move forward? Just was that fatherly figure for him. And that's not surprising because... When Tony Dungy was in Indianapolis, he had a ministry where he would basically kind of get football players or different men to kind of like do like a mentorship program with these kids in inner city because there was no dad in the home. There was no father figure in the home. And they would come alongside these kids, these teenagers, these troubled kids, and walk with them and encourage them and just love on them as a dad and, and give some, you know, sternness when you needed to. 
But he said something years ago that was so powerful. He said, man, when you take the father out of the home, what are the children left to become? And it just stuck with me all these years. Like, like, listen, mom, you have a vital role in your child's life. Dad, you have a vital role in your child's life. And when we think about the society we're in today, man, we're so quick to blame everyone else. And I'm not saying we can't say, you know what, I disagree with that or I don't like that. But when it comes to our marriages and our homes, let's be strong to say, I'm going to own my responsibility in my home. What does Joshua say? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Man, it's great to put on a door a thing by your door, right? I've seen them as refrigerator magnets, welcome mats by the door, T-shirts, bumper stickers. It's great. Oh, man, look, at we got the Bible, right? It's Joshua. And I, rather than have it on a doormat or a, a hanger by your door, let's live it. Let's live it. And listen, that means when, when, when dad is, is led to, to live that way, and maybe mom isn't there yet, it's not dad's job to beat the mom up and say, oh, you're a horrible person, blah, blah, blah. And if mom is there and dad's still growing in that, mom, it's not your job to beat up the dad and to condemn and, No, we just set that tone, we set that example, we initiate and we do what we're called to do. And so as we get into these next four weeks, my prayer is that we would realize that our marriages aren't even really about us. It's not really about us. I mean, primarily it's about him. It's about him demonstrating his love through us on display for the world to see. So let's dive in. I really didn't want to go down all that road there, but God must have led for it. So we went there. So if you have a crockpot on high right now, I apologize. Apologize, okay? But you should have known by now, it's low or warm, okay, when you come to church, okay? W- low or warm. So let's dive right in. So we all want a happy marriage. I think that's a true statement. Uh, as human beings, okay, Christian or non-Christian, we all want a happy marriage. We all want happiness in our home. So what's the trick? What's the trick? Just out of curiosity this week, I Google searched uh, just something like keys to a happy marriage. I was just curious what would come up. Now, Google's a little intuitive, right? So like if you do it on a computer where you've searched for other like Christian resources, it might pull some Christian materials. If you search for other things, it might pull up different things as far as resources. But when you look at that phrase, just if you search out keys for a happy marriage or to a happy marriage, you will get a lot of different resources, tons of different resources. I want a happy marriage. What do I need to do to have a happy marriage? Okay, I'll go to, what's the resources out there? What are the books or the writings or the teachings or whatever? And you obviously get one of two ways of going, right? You either get the world's view. Okay, there's lots of different studies and research that have been done about how to have a happy marriage and all these things. And psychiatrists and psychologists will get together and and they'll come up with all these lists of things you need to have in your marriage. Okay, some pretty crazy far out there, in my opinion. Okay, some pretty, uh, pretty nominal. Okay, just kind of basic things like trust, communication, you know, date nights, these kind of things that are kind of talked about a lot. Or you'll get the Christian view, right? You'll get tons of Christian authors. And then again, in the last 20 years, it seems to me like there's just a ton of different marriage books and marriage speakers and marriage conferences and marriage retreats. And it's all good, okay? It's all good as far as when the Bible is being applied to that area of life, I'm fine, okay? I'm not saying anything I'm saying is, is meant to be derogatory to any of that. But I think when you look at that, 
Obviously, we look at the world's view and we go, okay, well, they're limited. They're not going to really understand because as Christians, we see the word of God as our foundation for all of our relationships and for our lives individually. So we kind of move that aside. But what about when a non-Christian goes searching for that and they come across all these different writings and different books based on biblical principles? Now, that's good to an extent, right? It's good that a non-Christian would be reading a marriage book that would lay out some different principles and some things that would encourage them to think biblically about their marriage. But I also think there might be a danger here. I also think there might be a little bit of a danger here. And let me just explain this, what I mean, real quick. And I don't want to go too long on this, but I'm not going to explain what I mean here. While it is good that even those outside of Christ are being given biblical principles, we have to be careful in doing that. Here's what I mean. These principles can be misunderstood or misapplied without a relationship with Christ. A couple of the dangers that could exist in this idea of when somebody's hungry for a happy marriage, I just want a happy marriage. What's the trick? What's the catch? What's the equation? They're outside of Christ. They're not a follower of Christ. Or maybe they are saved, but they're immature in their faith. They've not been discipled and strengthened in their faith. And so they go to these resources, all these books, Maybe they even do a Bible study on marriage. But again, they're just looking for this tool. Hear me now. I just want the trick. I just want the strategy. Some of the dangers can exist if we're not careful that the Bible, number one, just becomes a manual to get a better marriage. That this book, this God-given, inspired word of God, just becomes all I really want is just give me the better marriage. What's the, what's the manual say? Okay, so we're kind of bringing down the word of God to that level. Another danger that could exist is the idea that by just being a Christian, your marriage is perfect. That by just being a Christian, your marriage will be perfect. Again, if we're not careful, we can portray this, whether it's in writings by different authors, even in movies, if we're not careful. And I'm not talking about happy endings. That's fine. But sometimes we kind of subtly put these things out there. And I'll reference something that is a movie I actually like. I actually enjoy the movie. I think it's a, it's a good movie. And, and couples should watch it. I watched it years ago, the movie Fireproof. Okay? Great movie. Okay? And I'm not knocking the movie. Hear me now. But there's one little part. And again, maybe I was being over-analytical. Okay? Maybe I was reading into it a little too much. But I was talking with somebody else, and they said the exact same thing before I even got there. At the end of the movie, what happens to um, Kirk Cameron's character? He becomes a Christian. Now he's trying to save his marriage, right? He's trying to do all the things to make his marriage work. And next thing you know, his wife, you know, becomes a follower of Christ. And they start, now they're, they're, they're Christian couple, right? And there's a scene at the end where after they get saved and, you know, whatever, whatever, now all of a sudden they're all dressed nice. They're jumping in the car, going to church, coming back from church. Everything's great. And if you're not careful, you might get the impression that, okay, so to fix my marriage, I just got to be a Christian. And what's funny is the person I was talking to said, man, it seems like, like they were just trying to say, like, just, just be a Christian and everything's good. Like, you'll never have any issues. And I know that's not what they were trying to say. I know that's not really what they meant. But that's what I mean when it kind of gets portrayed that way. So if we're not careful, all these resources are good. All these things are great. But we got to put it in the context of a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you take that away from all these resources, tools, it just becomes a trick. It just becomes a strategy. It just becomes a manual. It just becomes a gimmick at that point. 
And it's not transformative internally. It's externally transformative. And we change some things on the outside. But if we're not changed internally by relationship with Jesus Christ, and then as we're going to talk about in a minute, growing that relationship, we'll never see those things become real for us. They'll just be gimmicks and tricks. And so I hope you understand what I'm saying here. I'm all for biblical principles being given to non-believers. Don't misunderstand that. But what I'm saying is we've got to give it in the context of a relationship with Jesus Christ and then be honest to say, just because you're a Christian doesn't mean everything's going to be great and perfect. There's still going to be conflict. There's still going to be disagreements. There's still going to be arguments. There's still going to be misunderstandings and hurt feelings and all these things. So what do we do as a follower of Christ? We look at those things through the lens of Scripture and we try to deal with them in a Christ-like way. By the way, conflict in a marriage can be good, right? Couples will say, oh, well, I don't ever want to argue with my spouse. I don't ever want to get into a conflict with my spouse. I understand what you mean with that. And let me just encourage this way. I don't like saying, like, I don't like to say that Sandra and I had an argument. It's semantics, I know, Okay conflict, a disagreement. Okay, those are all the same words. But to me, when I hear the word argument, for me, I think fight. And I don't want to say that over my, I don't want to say that in my marriage. I don't want to get into a, argue, a fight with my wife, the one that Christ says I should be loving like he loved the church. We can have a disagreement. We can not see eye to eye and sometimes we can have a conversation. There might be some conflict, but what's the, what's the goal in conflict even? To have resolution. To come to a point of restoration. Okay, yeah, we don't agree on this, but let's work this out together in a Christ-like way. In a Christ-centered way. And so let's dive into what that looks like. Because there is one truth that will allow us to live in a healthy and joyful marriage. And that truth is to have a Christ-centered marriage. I didn't say it's always going to be a happy marriage. Because remember, happiness is not the goal in a Christ-centered marriage. Christ-centered marriages will produce Christ-likeness that will bring joy into our life, that will bring health as a follower of Christ and peace. But there may be, even as I'm following after Christ, there may be situations that arise that aren't going to make us happy in the moment. Okay? So understand what I'm saying here. Happiness is not the goal, although joy will be there in a Christ-centered marriage. I, I hope you understand where I'm going with this. So a Christ-centered marriage, number one, is about putting Christ... Number one. It's about putting Christ number one. This is true of our whole life. Now, I don't know if you've caught this yet, but for the last month and a half, we've been kind of hitting on this a lot. And for January, we talked about being a living sacrifice and standing up for Christ and being committed to Christ. It's something that God kind of has been leading to kind of, in my own life, make sure I'm, I'm focused on, but I want to encourage you to be focused on it as well as a church. So we're going to hit on this a lot through the coming months and year. Christ has to be number one. He has to be. If he's not number one, then we're sinning and we're falling away from where we need to be. Last week, Nathan Raish, our missionary with Word of Life, shared that Mary had chosen the one thing that was necessary. And that one thing, he put it on the screen for us, is what? What was the one thing on the screen last week that is the necessary thing we need to be focused on? What's our number one? Jesus. Right? He had it on the screen. He also challenged us to take time and to, quote, make space for that time with Christ. And I pray that you've taken time this week to make space and connect with Christ daily. Also, I want to encourage and kind of key in on the term that he used last week, the word necessary. 
What's the one thing that's necessary for us as a follower of Christ? It's our relationship with Christ. Again, in marriage books and and marriage seminars, we will hear lots of things that are necessary for a happy marriage. Lots of things that are necessary for a healthy marriage. But again, we need to understand that as a believer, as a follower of Christ, the only thing that is truly necessary for that healthy marriage is to be Christ-centered with Christ as my number one. And everything else will flow out of that. If Christ is number one in my life, and I'm working towards, not, not in a iron fist kind of way, but I'm just doing what God can allow me to do by lovingly encouraging and sharing the word of God with my family so that our marriage, our family is Christ-centered, out of that will flow other fruits, other things that will lead to a joyful and healthy marriage. So what is necessary for Christ-likeness in our own lives and marriages? It is consistency with Jesus Christ. It is consistency with Jesus. And it's also constant submission to Jesus as our number one. Consistency with Jesus as my number one and constant submission to Jesus as my number one. I am in in daily communion with him because he is my number one. And then out of that flows this submission to him. He is Lord of all, including my life and my marriage, my wife, my children, So Christ is my number one in a Christ-centered marriage, and my spouse becomes my number two, secondary to Christ. I've said for a long time, I still believe it is key. Your spouse is not the one that fulfills your longest desires and needs. Your spouse is not the one that fulfills your longest, deepest desires and needs. If you are trying to find those things satisfied in your spouse, you will be left empty. I will be left empty. It's not what marriage was meant to be. I'm not supposed to get everything from Sandra. I am meant to get everything from Christ. And then what? Sandra is a helpmate, one that comes alongside and helps me become who God has me to be. But I don't look to Sandra as my all in all. And by the way, I've said it for a long time, and I'll say it again. If you want to destroy your spouse... Put that burden on them, and it will crush them. Put the burden on your spouse that they're going to meet all of your needs, and it will literally crush them because they can't do it. You can't do it. And so rather than doing that, put Christ as my number one, look to him to fulfill me for all things, and then allow my spouse to come alongside and in a sense be a helpmate to that. And again, helpmate is not a derogatory term to the women. Okay, in today's day and age, it's not popular to say things like that, that a woman is the helpmate to the man. Do you know the psalmist, Dave, says that that God is his helpmate? That God is the one who strengthens David and helps him to be all that God has for him to be? And so when God says, this is your helpmate, this is the one that's going to come alongside, and Adam says, this is the one that God has given me, it was not meant to be uh, a label of inferiority. It's a label of, no, 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 we together Walk this life as followers of Christ, helping and guiding and strengthening one another to be all that God has for us to be. It's amazing to me, and I say this every time I do a wedding, it's amazing to me that God made woman from the side of man. And I've always said this, he didn't make her from his foot to be lorded over by man, and he didn't make her from his head that woman would rule over him. 
but from his side, so that they would walk together, equal, one on one and one together in Christ, equal in Christ. And so it's an amazing picture of this oneness. Now, I, I, I understand the Bible says, and again, this isn't popular today, but the Bible does talk about this idea that the man leads the wife, that the wife submits to the husband. But again, if we understand the true picture of marriage, that's not a bad thing. It's when we misunderstand. It's when a husband is not loving his wife as Christ loved the church that a wife has a hard time, difficult time, or even impossible time trying to submit to that. That's where the husband is becoming harsh and and rude and condemning and iron-fisting. No, no, no. It's about this relationship in Christ. Right before Paul talks about husbands love your wives and wives submit to your own husbands, to your own husbands, by the way. Not everyone's husband, okay? You don't have to submit to you know, your neighbor's husband or whatever, and do what he says. If he's like, hey, get over here and do the laundry. No, okay? But when you think about that relationship, right before that, it actually says, be in submission one to another in Christ. There's this equal submission that comes into play. And then God has orchestrated the family as such that the husband is to lead the family, to lead his wife as Christ leads the church. And the wife follows after that submission, or in submission. And again, if we are following this principle, as God has led us to, there will be great joy and peace and health in the marriage. It's when we get out of whack individually. It's when we allow things like pride and sin to rise up in us that things begin to break down. So, Christ is number one. Your spouse is secondary to Christ. And again, I'm not saying that our spouse doesn't feed into our lives and encourage, strengthen, support, bring joy. Of course, they do all these things. But your spouse, my spouse, is limited in what they can do for us. They are limited. Just like I am limited for Sandra, Sandra is limited for me. Christ, however, is completely unlimited. When we put Christ number one and our spouse secondary to Christ, we will expect less of our spouse and find more in our Savior. When we put our spouse number two to Christ, we will find more in our Savior and expect less of our spouse and in turn will cause our spouse less stress and grief to try to perform. In so many marriages, it's like, I got to do this, I got to do that, I got to do this. And I'll tell this story, and Sandra's in nursery right now, but she, I've told this story before and she's totally fine with this, but it's a, for me, it was a learning moment in my marriage and I had to realize, man, what am I doing that? But it was even funny. It was kind of an un, unspoken expectation that Sandra had of herself before she entered marriage. For a long time, up until really this last fall, Sandra, after my son Anthony was born, or actually when she got pregnant with Anthony, who's 12, uh, she made a decision. We made a decision. She wanted to stay home and, and raise Anthony. And then obviously Josiah came a couple years later. And so she made a decision to be a stay-at-home mom. And as we talked about all that, I thought it was great and everything. But So I would come home from work. And um, this is kind of crazy. She's coming in right now. So anyway, so I have to wait till she leaves to tell the rest of the story. Just kidding. So is that a sign, Lord? Is that? Let's just pray. Let's just you know. 
But I remember I would come in, you know, and I'd be working or whatever, come in. It's, you know, 5 o'clock in the evening, you know. Sandra would be in the kitchen getting dinner ready or whatever and when our kids were real little. And, you know, they're just running around. And it, you remember what it was like to have little kids in your house, right? If you've had little children in your house, like, say, uh, like a 1-year-old and like a 4-year-old. What does your house look like? Right? Just crazy. It's a mess, Okay. And I remember coming in and Sandra would be in the kitchen making dinner and getting everything going and I'd come in. And now here's the thing. I'm wired that I don't say something before I do it all the time. Here's what I mean. If I'm walking down the hallway and I see a piece of paper on the floor, ever since I was a kid, I've just been raised, pick it up. I don't need to stop and ask, hey, Dave, Dave Rummery, is it okay if I pick up this piece of paper? Okay. I don't have to ask. I just do it. So when I got married, I kind of did the same thing. If I walk in the house and I put my stuff down, I go in the living room and there's, you know, toys from earlier in the day laying on the floor, I just start picking it up. Why not? Because it needs to be done. Sandra's obviously got her hands full. She's been dealing with this all day, okay? The least I can do after escaping from this for six, eight hours is help and clean up a little bit. And I think, now, men, if this is you and you're doing this, you're thinking, this is a win, I'm winning right now. These are points. Right? I'm getting points here. And as much as Sandra did obviously appreciate helping that way, after I'm talking like a while of this, I would notice like she would kind of seem like like it bothered her. I'm thinking, that's so silly. I'm helping. And we had a conversation after a couple years of being married, and she said, you know, she said, just, she said, it actually made me feel bad. Like, like you're somehow, like maybe you think I'm a bad wife. Because you come home and you have to instantly go to cleaning the house and picking things up and doing the dishes and whatever. And I should have done those things during the day. And I'm, I'm sorry that I'm not a better wife, that I'm not. Guys, I'm sitting here like, what? You're awesome. Like, you're amazing. Like, the children are alive, okay? Like, you're, you're sane, okay? You're not running around the house, like, in a straitjacket, okay? Like, we're good. Like, this is great, Great cook, everything was fine. But for her, it was that expectation when I get into marriage, I gotta perform this way, right? And this is what I mean. Now I know that's a silly thing. But I learned I when I come in the house, I have to stop. And 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 now she's working, and so it's a little different dynamic. Now we're having dinner together, we're home at the same time, and so it's a little more kind of 50-50 right now. But but I try to stop and say, Hey, how was your day today? Man, guys. When you come into the house and if your, your wife's been home all day with the kids, just asking that question. Just pause 30 seconds. Hey, how was your day today? Is there anything I can do to help right now? Don't just assume and start helping and going. Make sure it's understood. Uh, wives, to your husbands, if you want your husband to do something when they come home from work, tell them. Crickets, Okay. Some men will come home and just do what when they get home? Just in the chair, right? Okay? Shh. I'm, I'm watching TV here, okay? Shh. Okay? I heard one speaker say, I just walked in my living room trying not to make eye contact with the little people, okay? Like, just don't, don't look at me. I'm just trying to get through, okay? And wives will say, my husband doesn't do anything. He's so lazy. What do you want him to do? Well, I think when he comes home, he should help me with the, getting the kids ready for dinner. Great. Did you ask him? I shouldn't have to. I get what you're saying. But what's, I mean, what's the harm in it? So this is what I mean. When we come into these things, we have this performance idea. Either my spouse isn't performing where I think they should, and so that causes bitterness and, 
and tension. And that goes on for a few months. And it's something so silly in the beginning, but it festers, right? And then it becomes this big thing. Man, we got to be so careful because we enter marriage sometimes with these unspoken expectations. This is what it's got to be, and it's got to look like this. And, and if you don't perform this way, then I'm going to hold back this. And man, we got to walk in and say, no, 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 no. This is what I believe is a biblical expectation. This is what I believe. And then have a communication about that. And I'm telling you, when you put Christ as your number one, you will expect so much less from your spouse. And it sets them free from that bondage of having to feel like they got to perform all the time. So I want to encourage you with that. Christ number one, our spouse is second to Christ. And I have to say it that way because a few years ago I made this statement that Christ is your number one and your spouse is your number two. And someone left that morning and went on Facebook and said, Pastor told me today at church that my husband is my number two. And I thought, what do you mean by that? I don't think you mean something biblical about that. I think that's sinful. And I won't tell you who it is, but Abby Whipple and I have talked since then. And we've been good with that. So, so that's what I mean. Your husband is secondary. Your wife is secondary to Christ. Okay, we've got, we're out of time. I've got to give you a couple things. Okay, I'm telling too many stories up here. So, a Christ-centered marriage. Write this down. I'm going to give you some things. I want to encourage you to write some things down, take some notes. A Christ-centered marriage... Again, it's not, the goal is not perfect in our understanding of perfection. It's maturity. It's growing. It's, it's maturing into a healthy, Christ-centered relationship. And so how do we do this? We put Christ number one. Once we've done that, what's the next step? What's the overflow of that? That statement, that moment when you say, Christ is my number one. This is a Christ-first marriage. You are laying the groundwork for a spiritual foundation. And you can build upon that foundation a spiritual emphasis in your marriage. Two things that can help you build a spiritual emphasis. Christ is number one. That's established. That's the foundation. Now we build upon that a spiritual emphasis, the effort part of our marriage. So how do we do that? First thing we do is we do that through prayer. We do that through prayer. Through prayer. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. I'll read it quickly. Philippians 4, verses 6 through 7. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall, excuse me, keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. We've heard this talked about in our own lives. Okay, I got um, the importance of prayer. But somewhere in our marriages, we slip on this. And I want to encourage you not to just pray for your spouse, to pray with your spouse. Not just to pray for your spouse, which is good, and we should do that, but strive to, to maybe set a goal to pray with your spouse. Uh, now, again, if your spouse is not a believer, if you're married to someone that is not a follower of Christ, and I know that happens and I know that exists, please, first of all, this is not meant to make you feel bad or guilty, okay? The point of this is if you are married to someone who's not a follower of Christ, it would be really, really difficult to sit down and pray with them. Because they're going to be like, I don't want to do this. They don't have any desire to do this. You can ask. You can offer it. They're probably going to say no. And if they do, that's fine. Again, we don't condemn. We don't guilt. Okay? But you open the door. If you're married to someone that is not a Christian, so husband, your wife's not a Christian, or wife, your husband's not a Christian, then I would encourage you to start praying for your spouse to come to know Christ. Maybe don't pray, God, change this about them and change that about them. The first thing we pray is, Lord, draw them to you, and may they see through me 
Christ, that they would come to know Christ. Give me the words to say that I can proclaim the gospel to them, that they would come to know Christ. And so if your husband or or wife is not a believer, we pray for them. We pray adamantly for them. Um, And I'm not going to get into details, but uh, someone in our church did this for over 30 years. And then finally the Lord uh, opened a door and this person came to know Christ. The spouse came to know Christ. And so I believe that was difficult for that person, but they prayed consistently for their spouse. Open the door. Ask, would you like to pray with me about this or that? But if they're not interested, then you pray for them. If your spouse is a believer, then you can grow with them spiritually through prayer. To be honest, uh, this is something that Sandra and I, uh, as of recently, have made a commitment to, a recommitment rather, to get better at. Um, We pray every single night, the four of us, our two boys and Sandra and I, we pray every night before bed. And we we pray for different requests and we kind of spend that time together as a family. Sandra and I will try to on Sunday mornings. It doesn't always happen together. Um, This morning she was in nursery, but we try to go down to the prayer room down the hallway here and just spend some time, even just five minutes in quick prayer of just, okay, Lord, speak to us today. But other than that, we came to like her and I praying individually or uh, together before bed. Uh, The last little while, we haven't really been great at that. I'll just be transparent. But, but I'm telling you, we're striving to get back to that because early on in our marriage, we did that. We made a commitment to say, we're going to pray together. And man, for the first couple of years, we were praying together every night, and it was awesome to see how God was moving in our lives. We got away from it a little bit because guess what? Life happens. So I want to encourage you, as Sandra and I have kind of said, we're going to recommit to this. Again, I know we pray with our kids, but there's something different when you can just pray as husband and wife and just pray together. I would encourage you, maybe if you're married, you would begin to do that with your husband or wife, if they're a follower of Christ. And again, if they're interested in doing that, it's not about guilting them. It's about opening the door so that you can grow together. Some keys on this, some thoughts on this to encourage you, some ways to pray with your spouse. One thing I would encourage is keep it short. Keep it short. It doesn't have to be this long, drawn-out theological prayer. It can be something short, okay? Lord, give us wisdom in raising our children. Lord, give us wisdom in our finances. Lord, help us to love one another as you love us. Simple things like that can help us to pray together, but keep it maybe short depending on the moment. Of course, if you're getting ready to go to bed, keeping it short helps because you don't want to be like, dear Jesus, okay? Right? Uh, Keep it consistent. Uh, Make it a habit, okay? And if you miss one day, don't miss two. If you miss one day, don't miss two. So we're just trying to do that. Now, the warning is what? It will be awkward if you've never done it before. I've always found it amazing. Couples that have been married for 20-some years that never really did this, they start trying to do it, and they're like, this is so weird. We've talked to each other almost every day for 20 years, but when we close our eyes and we talk to Jesus together, it seems weird because it's a discipline like anything else. And so uh, embrace the awkwardness. (laughs) Just enjoy it, okay? Uh, And you will push through and you'll be fine. But just spend that time together. Uh, Secondly, So one of the ways we build the spiritual emphasis is through prayer, and secondly is through the church, through the church. I'm going to give it to you for note's sake. Jot it down. It's a passage we've read before. Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verses 24 and 25 talk about provoking one another into loving good works, uh, encouraging and edifying one another as we gather together. Um, I want to encourage you that the church and involvement in the local church is a huge aspect of a healthy Christ-centered marriage. If you have an unbelieving spouse, again, I know you have most likely tried and tried to encourage church involvement. Maybe you and your spouse see differently on this and they're just not interested. Then again, please don't beat them up, condemn them, or guilt them, but offer to them, hey, I'm going to church this morning. I'd love for you to join me, okay? And again, it's up to you how you word that, but but don't let an unbelieving spouse keep you from growing in Christ. Because I'm telling you right now, 
I've seen couples that there's an unbeliever in the home and, and the wife says, I'm going to church and the husband stays home or the husband goes to church and the wife stays home. The person that's involved in the church and, and growing in the Lord sees that benefit, that blessing of that to go the other way. Well, my spouse doesn't want to go, so I stay home. I've never seen that produce health in a marriage. I've only ever seen that led to heartache and stress and issues. So I'm telling you, when you're involved in local church, it makes a huge difference in our marriages, even if you are the only one and your spouse is not interested in being involved. And so we invite, but we also continue to make it a part of our lives. If your spouse is a believer, but church doesn't seem to be a priority for them, they know Christ, they're saved, but church is not a priority for them, then you, again, you initiate and you encourage, but don't let it stop you from being involved. Don't let it stop you from growing in the Lord. If you're both believers, both interested in church, then encourage one another. And this is what I mean by that. There's going to be some Sundays, some services you don't feel like getting up and going to. And if your spouse feels like, I want to go, then lean on that as strength and encouragement to be involved. But why is this such a big deal? Why is it so important that we have the church in our marriages? Because when you understand what the church's role is in our lives individually, and it produces maturity and Christ-likeness in our own lives as we're under the teaching of God's word and serving one another, praying for one another, you will see in your marriage it will make great difference. When you read the New Testament, you will never see followers of Christ not connected to the body of Christ. When you read the New Testament, the idea of a follower of Christ not connected to the local body of Christ is foreign. It's not there. There's, that group is, that connection is key and vital. When we do not plug into the church, we are denying our marriages and our lives the lifeline it needs to be all God has for them to be through Christ and has for us to be through Christ. As a follower of Christ, our marriages, like our lives, should put Christ as our foundation. Let's purposefully, with great intent, build a spiritual emphasis in our relationships so that they are Christ-centered relationships. And again, this is not just for marriages. Everything I've said today can be applied to your relationships at work, your relationships in your community. It's about Christ-centered one, that other person two, and how can I allow Christ to speak through me into their lives and encourage them, whether it's my wife, whether it's my neighbor. In whatever context, keep Christ-centered, and you will see great blessings and health and joy in your relationships. Even when conflict comes, if he's centered, he will be glorified. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for this morning. And I do thank you, Lord, for the attentiveness of the, uh, of the church this morning and their willingness to be here. I pray, Lord, that as we walk this out in our lives this week, that you would just give us great wisdom, that you would lead, guide, and direct in all these things, that we would make a decision to put you number one in our lives, that our marriages and our relationships would be Christ-centered above all things. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to individually dive into your word and to see the, the, the importance of laying that foundational groundwork in you and in Christ alone. You are our foundation. And upon you in our lives, we build that spiritual emphasis through prayer and through the local church. And I pray that these things would be keys in our marriages and in our lives. Help us to keep you first in all these things. Be with us now, Lord, as we respond to you through a time of invitation. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning? And my challenge is simple. Wherever you are in your life right now, we just want you to respond. However God has spoken to you, respond. Maybe you're in relationship right now with someone that you're not sure, husband or wife, could this be the person I'm going to marry one day? Maybe you'd come and pray, God, give me wisdom on that. 
Maybe you're here today and, and you're married. And you and your wife, you and your husband want to make a commitment to say, we're going to keep Christ first. Maybe he is first. Let me say this. Maybe he is first above all things. Then maybe you'd come and pray, Lord, help us to keep you first in all things and allow you to be the center of our marriage. I want to encourage you, if you're here today and you're married and your spouse is with you or you're by yourself or whatever, maybe you'd come and pray and say, God, we're going to commit our marriage to you and we're going to keep you number one. Whatever God is doing, would you respond as we're led in a song of invitation?